0: These are a few of my favorite things. Girls in
1: white dresses with blue satin sashes. Nobody
2: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview series with multi award winning Canadian singer, songwriter, pianist and radio show host lila Bialy. just in time for the holiday season she follows up with her second single a bold take on the festive show tune my favorite things with nods to julie andrews and john coltrane she incorporates her imaginative arrangement and moves on this iconic song into a very fresh territory over the years she has headlined festivals and venues spanning five continents we get into modern living shows the future and so much more enjoy this interview
0: Good morning, it's Joe D'Amino. <laughs> good morning, Joe D'Amino.
1: How are you? How are you? I'm <laughs> wonderful.
0: <laughs> Thank, good, thanks for good. taking a minute out. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, my goodness. I'm the thankful one. I remember talking to you when, when Out of Dust released during pandemic. So here we are. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Huh. It was, yeah, and, and it was right when, I apologize, there's some times going. It was right no when, which I guess is apropos, It was right when the (laughs) pandemic was really kind of raging and we didn't know what was happening or where it was going to go. So um, Uh, I guess it's crazy. And I think at that point, like everybody, we thought, okay, well, it's going to go from like two weeks to a month and it's going to extend and then hopefully, you know, we'll have some daylight and then it just kind of spiraled out of control. And I'm curious, as a recording artist, you know, the artist community really took this hard. How did you survive that time period? And how did it subsequently change the way – that you pursue your life now as a musician?
1: Well, that's a really great kind of multi-layered question because it's it's interesting. And I'd be curious to know if you or other artists have had a similar experience. So during the pandemic, which was in fact a crisis, uh, an emergency, it felt like we were just kind of bearing through. And, And so we were just trying to extract any good that we could Silver linings and such from what was otherwise a really dark and tough time, especially for artists. I mean, all kinds of people, but but I know that artists were among the most profoundly affected in terms of their work, right, and capacity to to reach people and just keep doing what we do. So we pivoted. You know, my husband is both a drummer and an engineer, so we were able to broadcast from home. But it, it just never. While it was a great sort of stopgap, it it was it was never. <laughs> could never be compared to live performances, in my opinion, right? It was, it was never the same experience. And so we, we did that, and then the world would open up in different pockets here and there. You know, like the West Coast of Canada would have less tough restrictions, and so we would go there to perform and tour a little bit. And we were sort of always chasing wherever things were opening up a little bit. But where it really affected us, where we really noticed the most profound effect, Joe, was... Actually, on the backside, as we were beginning to come out of what we thought was the worst of things, um, it was then that we really experienced sort of the full weight of all that had happened, which is so interesting. And I, I don't know. I've heard other people speak to that kind of an experience where you know you bear through, and and you you know your adrenaline is coursing, and you're you're just kind of doing everything you can. To get through, but then, and then when you get into a safer space again and it feels like the storm has passed, that's actually when your body and your brain go, Wow, okay, that was hard. <laughs> so that was our experience, at least psychologically.
0: And I think the interesting part of what you're explaining, and I've thought about this and kind of talked about it too with musicians, is that we are all actively going through some level of PTSD because
1: mm-hmm.
0: even though the world's opening up and doing what we knew it could do for most of our lives, it's still one of those adjustments where it's like, okay, when are we going to have to go back into the rabbit hole? When is this possibly going to turn into another variant and another place where we have to go away again? And I think there's still a part of us. Now, if it would have been more seamless, I think there would have been a part of us that would have emerged like out of, out of other things that, that have been seen as like global tragedies. But this was kind of like, all right, come on out. Nope. Sorry. Too early. Come on out. No, nope, this this variant's works. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like the whack-a-mole. It's like there was no really good way yeah. to come out. And when you came out, yeah. you did get whacked like a mole. And it was really hard. Yeah. Um, But I think the thing that's very promising about what's going on right now from my perspective versus when I spoke with you the first time, it's like everybody was kind of working off the fuselage of having material coming out without knowing a pandemic was happening and then being like, oh, my, what am I going to do now? But now at this point in history, everybody's releasing material thinking, I get to go out and and perform this live. The world's waking up. It's It's a different lease on life. So how does it feel?
1: Well, it feels amazing. I think the main thing is not to just burn out right away. So, you know, we basically took two years of delayed and um, canceled but then reinstated tour dates and packed them into a five month time frame. So I was on the road flat out from April, April through September. And and it was a lot. Like I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, I was finding my touring legs again. That's a muscle going on, on the road and not sleeping and performing night after night. And you know, that's those are muscles <laughs> that need to be trained. And and at that point, they had all atrophied. And even though you know we were all so enthusiastic, um, the world in which we were nav- the world that we were navigating was actually in some ways more complex. Like so you, prices were. Com- crazy, like so much more expensive than we'd ever experienced. And, um, and you know, when we were seeing from audiences, a mix. It was a mix of people like just raring to go that could not wait to get back out into public and experience live music, and others who still felt more hesitant. So, uh, yeah, really, really interesting stuff. But I it just feels so good to be back. So
0: talk to me a little bit about what your perception of the audience is after this, you know, versus before the pandemic, and now I know there's been a level of appreciation for me being able to go out and see live music. But what are you feeling overall about people's response to recorded music and your presence live?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I think as artists, you know, when we tour and we're performing live, you're in the spotlight and the audience is there to appreciate you and support you, and so you're sort of the focal point. And what I think pandemic did was it flipped that equation? So now I think artists everywhere have a huge appreciation for their audience. You know, something that we would just never take for granted, right? Because um, we know now that, you know, in some ways people's habits have changed, right? Some folks have gotten used to just watching Netflix or you know, streaming something on their screens versus going out in the flesh and and maybe paying quite a bit of money to go experience uh, music live. So, so to me, um, I just have <laughs> I, I I feel anytime I get on stage that time is precious, right? With a with a real audience out there, and I've come to realize, Joe, that the audience is a member of the band. They are every bit as much a contributor to what happens in the room that night as the band is. Like, they actually hold equal, um, they have equal influence, which I don't know that any of us really realized that until we were playing through our computer screens, right? (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, that's a new perspective for me. Talk to me a little bit
0: about My Favorite Things, which is going to ultimately be a culmination of a new album this year. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what you've been doing on that front, this single, and kind of what's coming up for you.
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. So, um, you and I first met officially when I had released Out of Dust, which was almost entirely original songs, and my past two album releases, actually the past three album releases were all original material, or mostly the the bulk of the songs were original. And um, so anyway, but prior to that, you know, I would be covering songs from the Great American Songbook, or what I call the Great Canadian Songbook, and... At live shows, I really took pleasure in inviting audiences to submit their song requests. What do they want to hear me do? And not just from the Great American Songbook, but also the pop, you know, pop realm and pop hits. And that's how I ended up doing songs like David Bowie's Let's Dance and Cold Plays Yellow. So earlier this year, I decided I would make it official. And I posted on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and I said to my, my communities there, what standards, what jazz standards would you like to hear us do? And I got a, a list of more than 150 song requests. And I, I, I took note of every single request that came in. I have it in a little notes file on my phone. And I went through and I just sort of picked the 10 that struck me as most interesting. Um, actually, a couple of them I had already arranged previously, but not recorded or released and and we went into the studio with no rehearsal <laughs> and just you know learned them on the spot cuz the guys i work with are that agile and we all know each, each other really well and so there's that excitement and that feeling that you get when when you know um jazz musicians perform live um of sort of discovering the music together and so that's what we did and and we recorded uh 10 tracks and those tracks will be released together um, as a collection of songs called Your Requests Volume 1. And so that is to suggest that this is going to be an ongoing evergreen kind of a project. And um, I did get a few Christmas requests, one of which was my favorite things. And I thought, you know, that song can go a few different ways. It can be a holiday track. It can also be, you know, just a regular standard, as we know from John Coltrane's version. So I figured that could have a place both within this season and also um, you know, just on on the full album without being a stranger. So yeah, we like released fun, uh, Autumn Leaves rather, uh, and now my favorite things. And next up will be my funny Valentine with Kurt Elling. So that's super exciting. So the, the
0: one thing that I've noticed about this time period of everybody coming out is that I'm curious from your perspective, your kind of methodology of of what you're going to do. From me. I mean, you're very busy. You're in the studio. You're on the stage. You're on the radio have you felt as though you're accelerating what you used to do before or are you at the same pace? What's kind of your philosophy now that life is is coming back into being, what are you doing differently now than you didn't before?
1: Huh? I mean, it's interesting. I would say that it's harder now in some ways to, to, to do the work because I, I, I do think that we were all kind of knocked down by the experience of pandemic. We call it the great pause. <laughs> And, um, so there's, you have to kind of work harder to muster that energy. At least I do, but the passion is, is stronger. I mean, in a way it was almost like a vows renewal, you know, like because so many people, like a lot of my friends and peers quit. They just said, I I can't do this anymore. And they left a profession they had been invested in for decades and that kind of broke my heart. But on the other hand, I was like, you know what? I get it. They've got to, they've got to do what they've got to do. But for me, it was a renewing of the vow to, to to really stay committed to music in this path, and so I'm I'm like doggedly determined, but also like a child, you know, really uh, so thrilled and grateful that we get to do this. Um, in terms of my process, you know, we we actually were in the midst of a really hard home renovation in the middle of pandemic pandemic, if you can believe it. So that was every bit is just disruptive, if not more so. And so now that that's a little bit more settled, um, my husband and I, who do a lot of creative work together, we've been quite prolific. So I'll have two new albums coming out next year. So the Your Requests, Volume 1, and then also a Winter Songs album, um, which is entirely original songs, um, with the exception of one, Huron Carol, which is a beautiful indigenous carol. Um, And that'll that'll come out uh, next, probably early winter. And then we already have enough uh, holiday arrangements to to maybe fill a your requests. Volume two, the holiday edition. Uh, so it's great, Joe. We've been really active, and I think we just have to be careful not to get not to go too crazy with repertoire <laughs> and to pace ourselves a little bit.
0: You know, for someone that enjoys the stage as much as you, I'm curious. Going back in your life, what was the first live show you ever saw that made you think you wanted to do that with your life?
1: Ooh. Well, I mean, there are a few that stand out. So when I was a kid, I was a classically trained piano player, and I wanted to be a concert pianist. So my heroes were, you know, Evgeny Kissin and Yanina Fialkowska and and um, Arthur Rubinstein, and, and my my parents took me to the Grand Theater in downtown Vancouver called the Orpheum, and I remember seeing you know Evgeny Kissin there live, and I oh, it was just such a thrill and it was then you know that i remember thinking to myself gosh i'd love to i'd love to give people the same feeling that i'm getting from this experience so not just about the spotlight and and you know kind of getting people's adoration but more so what could i give to them as an artist because it was such an incredible feeling it was like no other and then you know Shortly thereafter, I saw Sarah McLaughlin live. I was a teenager at that point. And then I saw Dave Matthews live when I was in college and, and then you too. And I know these are all like pop bands. And of course, I, I have, there have been many, many jazz shows that uh, have profoundly impacted me. But um, in some ways, those large scale concerts and experiences of being in a stadium, 25,000 people, but completely united. In the love and celebration of music it's just so profound, you know?
0: That's why I asked it as kind of an open-ended question, because I know even from my perspective, I saw a lot of big shows early on that were very formative like that. Like I saw Dave Matthews a few times come Mm -hmm. come through, and it's huge. I mean, that whole idea of the way that the crowd interacts and just kind of their trajectory of getting as big as they did and all of that, such a great story. Um, Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it's wonderful. So I'm curious with all of this mileage that you've gained in the world of music over the years, if you have a dream tonight and you run into your young version, your version that's young, getting ready to go out and start start your career,
1: mm. and you can give
0: that version a piece of advice based on what you've learned throughout all these years, the wisdom that you've gained, what would you tell mm. your young version?
1: <laughs> I would say pace yourself this is going to be much harder than you ever imagined but it will also be more rewarding than you ever imagined so just know that the long game while less exciting right than than kind of a burst of of fame and and uh, you know all that comes with that and, and i i know that that has its challenges as well just watch any documentary from katy perry or lady gaga and you'll you'll know as much but but i just would want to say to that young person, don't get ahead of yourself because you're in a genre that is not ageist and celebrates um, artists, you know, developing and growing and maturing. I mean, look at how jazz audiences revere Sheila Jordan and, you know, people who are in their 80s and 90s, right? Like, there aren't a lot of genres that really do that, you know? Um, I do think that ageism creeps into, into other genres more than jazz. So we're very fortunate in that regard. Um, so that's what I would say to, to younger Lila. And, um, and then I would also say don't chase what other people tell you you ought to be doing. Like be careful of the prescriptions you're given over time. And also be careful how much you take to heart the critical voices. Because there will be many. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. And sometimes it's only a matter of taste. So leave room for that and keep keep following the muse and your sense of what the call is musically and otherwise. Because if you pay attention to all those voices, the the good and the bad, it can get confusing um, about what next steps to take. Um, So, yeah, that's what I would say.
0: I love that commentary on longevity, and I I got a quick story. My show engineer, his name's John Christopher, and he has a show called The Neon Beat, and that's how Mm -hmm. Neon Jazz started, and he does the American Songbook, and he's wonderful. He's been a DJ his whole life. He originated in Lincoln and came here. Well, the first song Mm -hmm. he ever played on his show was Marilyn May, and I wanted real bad Cause we started in 2011 i really wanted him to be able to meet her and to see her and she actually when she mm. got really kind of big in new york there for before the pandemic around 18 19 i actually got tickets to a show here locally and he got to meet her and when i watched her that era is not around anymore she, you know the piano player mm. was playing in between songs She's telling anecdotes. Uh. It feels like a Johnny Carson show. The Bedside Manor is like number 11. Like everything about what she did was an era of entertainment. It wasn't like, all right, this is a gig. We're going through repertoire. It was like, I'm going to entertain you in that way that you get entertained. It, it, It just, you know, in a magnanimous way. It was wonderful to see.
1: Yeah, it's a show, but not at the expense of artistry. So, as you said, entertainment with a capital E, and I agree with you, I think that that, is, that has gotten somewhat lost, especially in the jazz world. In fact, I would just interject quickly that I think it's one of the shortcomings of, of modern jazz is, you know, we forget that Duke Ellington Like, that was the pop music of its day. Now, I understand that we're not really in that trend anymore 100 years later, but or nearly 100 years later, but the truth is that some of what's gotten lost is jazz has become more insular and sometimes it feels more like a museum piece or like like a like art hanging on a wall in an, in an exhibit that's meant to be admired and appreciated and critiqued but not necessarily that's not necessarily inviting or inclusive and to me it's like oh gosh we should never lose that even if it's super high level intellectual, abstract, or free jazz, I still think there should be a component that's immersive and brings the audience in rather than makes them feel alienated and like they're watching something rather than participating, right? So I'm sure that concert that you spoke of, you know, it felt immersive on some level, right? Like you were in her living room or something or, you know, um, you're being entertained.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah, absolutely. You know, the one thing I did notice, too, Arturo Sandoval came through town, and he put on one of the best jazz shows I've ever seen. He's talking to the crowd; he's mm. funny. The crowd' yeah. really involved. And I talked to him. I got to tell him afterwards. I was like, "That that was the most incredible thing." And I talked to his pianist, Max Hamer, and he said that he went out and got barbecue with people from the audience that night because you know Kansas City's known exactly. for it. But. Yeah, they went out hung out with the locals and had a great time. But, man, that crowd, I've never seen. It was at the end of our Charlie Parker week, I think in 2018, at the end mm. of August, which is always jubilant to begin with. But mm. this, maybe, maybe we were all like cattle and we knew that there was going to be a pandemic coming because there was an electricity and a celebration because after that, of course... Everything kind of got put on hold for about two or three years, but anyway, yeah. that's the the fervor that Arturo put out there that I, I love seeing when I go see shows because it's infectious. It's wonderful to see.
1: Oh, that's so great! Yeah, that's that's, and I'm and I'm I'm not saying that it can't still be profound when the artist is a little more insular. I remember seeing Brad Meldau who I adore. So the piano, I don't think he turned to us once to address us. It was a little bit like a fishbowl, like there he was at the piano. And yet the music was sublime. It was like the music spoke for itself. But if I had brought a friend in who didn't love jazz, I don't think they would have left converted. Whereas if they'd gone to that Arturo Sandoval concert, I bet they would have been like, oh, I love this. I need this in my life, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So let me get kind of fantastical here and ask you if you could get a Jazz DeLorean to pull up when we get off the phone.
1: You find <laughs> them.
0: Okay? You punch in the digits. Where are you going? Who are you going to see?
1: Ooh, ha, oh, man. Oh, honestly, I never saw Oscar Peterson live. He's Canadian. And he's Canadian yeah. royalty and, and so special. And he's been in my ears since I started playing jazz.
0: So I I had an interview with a musician and, and, and her name's going to come to me. There's so many of these that happen. Sometimes I lose track. Yeah. And she was a neighbor of his and used to oh listen my gosh. to him. Uh, she's a singer. It was such a, such a wonderful interview. She was. She is one of the most amazing people. I, I'm going to remember it and I'm going to send it to you, but she was okay. a neighbor of his and he would play out of his window and he was painfully shy, but he would practice and she listened and learned and loved it. But could you imagine Oscar <laughs> Peterson being a young kid getting his chops and you get to like, be there? I mean, it takes what you just said and adds like every possible Willy Wonka gold ticket to it.
1: Oh man, no, that's that's unbelievable. That's that's incredible. And I know his daughter, Celine Peterson. Um, she's a wonderful influencer, and and you know she does an incredible job, which I'm, I think feels enormous to her, of preserving her dad's legacy and trying to honor his music and um, and and who he was and who he is now as a historical figure. And anyway, she's she's uh, an extraordinary human being, as you would imagine. Um, But, yeah, no, to to have that kind of an experience, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. Absolutely. So
0: I'm going to remember the name, and I'm going to get it to you. And and I can't believe it's eluding me, but sometimes your Rolodex gets way too full. So what I'm going to ask you now is everyone has a perception of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. Mm. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are?
1: Oh, oh my gosh. It's going to sound so cheesy. <laughs> it's going to sound really cheesy. Do you want my Hallmark card answer? <laughs> I, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I'm I really – I mean, it sounds so airy-fairy, hippy-dippy, but um, I, I am such a believer in the power of love in this world, and I really believe that no matter what your field, whether you're a frontline worker or a teacher or a musician or, you know, a maintenance engineer, or whatever it may be, you know, pump gas. I really feel like we're all here to be agents of love in the world. And that's, I fail often, but that's really what I feel wired to be at my best. And that's what I want to be. And that's what I hope the music um, ultimately does for people is just makes them feel loved in some way. <laughs> Wonderful. My Walmart I love it. <laughs> Merry and, Christmas, and you- everybody. <laughs>
0: And, and you know why I really like that. I got to I got to confess. Up this summer, I got invited to a wedding in Pine, Colorado, and it was in the mountains. It's surreal, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, mm. I'm waiting ah. to see a camera around me, like I'm in a Hallmark movie. It was totally bizarre.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, this is too this is too good to be true. You know, I, mean, I know it, 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 it's wild. But at any rate, let's get to the good business here of. Where everybody can, in the proper place, because, you know, Bandcamp kind of came under a microscope, thankfully, to really support yeah. the artist community. Tell me where the best place is for, for folks to get your singles, and when the new album's mm-hmm. coming out, live shows, anything revolving around your world.
1: You know what, Joe? I don't even know if I'm on Bandcamp, and, and, but you're right. That is the sort of one of the more artist-friendly, uh, platforms. Um, however, I will say that I've now adopted all the streaming platforms, even though folks have mixed feelings about them. So I'm really delighted if people find me on Spotify, or Apple Music, or Amazon, or Pandora, uh, wherever you you know listen to and stream and download your music. Otherwise, you know, folks like analog and and they want hard copies. Um, you know, they can go to my website. I've got a little store there. Um, I am now. I have to confess letting a lot of my albums go out of print. So I'm, I'm, you know, I have some limited copies left of Out of Dust and my self-titled album. And, and now I have the hard decision to make of whether or not to press more. I mean, people are still buying them at shows. But uh, I think it's a bit of a conundrum for musicians right now. I have thought a lot about vinyl, but I just haven't made the leap yet because it's such a gorgeous medium. But um, it's expensive and heavy <laughs> and fragile. So um, I'll get there eventually, I think. But, yeah, my website or all the streaming platforms. This has been
0: wonderful. It's so great to catch up with you in better times. Um, I I love your energy and and what you do. Thank you for opening up. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you for the support. You're a wonderful, you know, interviewer, and you're more than that. You know, you connect and share and and all that. I hope we get to meet face-to-face before long. Oh, yeah, that'd be
0: wonderful. Yeah, and in the spirit of Arturo and his band, you should come in for some barbecue. You'll never forget it.
1: I know I won't. (laughs) Like, I I want to do that, and I won't forget it. I know it, because I love barbecue. I love it.
2: Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Canada, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Lila for all of her energy and her cool and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.